Well, good morning again. Well, it was the summer of 1981, and I had just finished my junior year in high school, and I was looking forward to the summer, and I was looking forward further on to being a senior in high school. And I was doing what high school kids do. I was enjoying life. I was playing basketball. I was working at the, the, pro, the grocery store, unloading produce from the produce trucks. Now, that wasn't something kids like to do, but it made money. And uh, I was cutting grass. And uh, a theater that was within walking distance of my house, I was uh, raised and uh, spent most of my uh, early years in Norfolk, Virginia, but you could walk to this theater. And one thing they did, because you got to remember, this was before cell phones and streaming and entertainment galore, and it was a real treat to go to the movies in 1981. Cost for a movie was about two fifty. That that won't even get you an M M&M and M at most theaters today. But um, so uh, the theater uh, during the weekday, and I could tell it was geared for students because it was right in the middle of the workday. It was like ten a.m. and so definitely geared for students. And so a movie had just come out, and it was a it was a collaboration between two of the two of the greatest and uh, movie storytellers of our day, Steven Spielberg and. George Lucas had partnered together with this movie about an archaeologist who traveled the world looking for treasures. His name was Dr. His fictitious character, his name was Dr. Henry Jones. And in this particular movie, he was in search of the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember this movie uh, as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and Indiana Jones was, was that fictional character. And I remember as a young high school man, young man, coming out of that theater, I had goose pimples that I didn't think were ever going to go away. Um, I just, I, I think I saw that movie about five or six times that summer. And I thought to myself, this movie has it all. I mean, the guy in this movie's got the good looks. This guy has um, brains. He has a sense for adventure. And he stares down danger face-to-face. And I said, finally, a story that captures the essence of who I am. (laughs) And uh, I am a little alarmed at how fast he laughed at that. But but why do I tell you that? Well, I believe that everybody uh, at some point, especially as a high school kid, you want to be the hero of the story. You want to be like that guy. When you watch a, a, a sporting event, you want to be that guy that stretches out and catches that game-winning pass. You want to be the hero. And so why I tell you that, we'll come back to that. As we wrap up our time this morning, um, I will come back to this story of Indiana Jones and why it's re- relevant to me. But this morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, we are going to be looking at a story that has gotten my attention many times uh, as a follower of Christ and reading his word. I love this story. It is a story, uh, I think it's a, a, a brilliant foreshadowing of what Christ has done for every sinner. I think it's a living parable, and as you read it, I think there is a sweet scent of redemption through this story. It is the story of David and Mephibosheth. Now, I believe many of you are probably familiar with Mephibosheth. I would, I would even 
say that many of you, as when you couples, when you found out you were having a boy, that Mephibosheth was one of the names you had in the running. I think Tyler and Jordan could probably, that was probably one of the top five, right, Tyler? He's six, he says. Um, but if you don't know this story, it is a wonderful story. Just the story between these two men, but also of what God has done for us. And I hope that when we are done with this, um, you will see better. Maybe a different angle. You know, I was thinking when, and maybe I'm thinking a lot because there was some football on this week, but you know how we benefit from different angles. We see things differently. And sometimes when you're watching a a sporting event, um, you're not sure if somebody caught the ball or you're not sure if there was a fumble. And then they show you a different camera angle. And it changes everything. You're like, man, I thought that was a fumble, but actually it's not. And so I hope as we go through the story, maybe you'll see just another camera angle of how awesome our God is and what he does in reaching out to to lost sinners like you and me, like he has done for us. So let me go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we we will dig into this this uh, chapter. Holy God, we have come here this morning, we've just finished worshiping you in song, and you are mighty, Lord God, and we're thankful for you, we're thankful for what Christ did on our behalf. This is our theme of worship this morning, thankful for Christ, we're thankful for the Godhead, we are thankful for the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. I pray this morning, Lord, you would open our hearts and minds to understand the scriptures. Um, Sometimes we can get lost and not be sure what you are saying to us, but would you open our minds and hearts. Thank you for this morning. I pray for Pastor Jeff and his family as they are away, Lord, that you would just bless him as he preaches and gets the opportunity to be in his home church. What a blessing to them and what a blessing to him. And I pray that you would use that, Lord. We do pray for our missions. We think of the foreigners serving in Uganda. We ask that you would protect them and watch over them as they move about the country, as they minister to many different groups of people, uh, Lord, and their family that's scattered all over, Lord, uh, to meet the needs of that family, uh, both physically and spiritually. And thank you for what the Gideons are doing. Thank you what we heard Keith share today. Um, and Lord, how true is it that we live in a culture where people do not know about you. It is true that many years ago it was commonplace to travel from people to come to your house and worship, and it's not that way anymore. And we live in a, in a, a country where many people do not know about you, don't know the name of Jesus, don't know about your saving work, and are not even convicted about their sin. So we pray that you would help us. Use us, Lord God, to do your work place that we live. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do want to go over, I hate to jump in right to chapter 9 without kind of setting uh, the stage of what's happening in, in here. Um, so first of all, I wanted to just talk about a little bit about the relationship between David and Saul. As you recall, the people wanted a king, uh, and they clamored for a king, and God gave him Saul. And uh, Saul was a prideful man, and he made a lot of mistakes, and so much to the point where God removed his hand of blessing 
off of Saul. And David and Saul's encounter came when David stood up to Goliath. And we all remember that story. When David uh, stood up to Goliath, killed him, and even then he won Saul's favor for a short time. And so much so that Saul enlisted him into the Israel army and would not let him return home. And as victory upon victory racked up for David, this admiration for David in Saul's eyes plummeted. The more victories David won, the less Saul liked him. And especially, talk about the pride of a man, when the, when the women from the villages and the towns would come out with their tambourines and their instruments, and they would sing, Saul killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Man, that gets to a prideful man. And he was angry and he hated David, so much so that he wanted him dead and made several attempts on his life. In fact, when Saul wasn't fighting enemies, he spent a lot of his time looking for David. And David and his, his band of followers would move about through the wilderness in different places, and Saul would hunt him down. And on two occasions, we know in the Scripture, David had the opportunity to take his life. And David, because he knew that Saul had been anointed, he refused to take his life. And that gives us a little bit of insight into David and his character. And do you, do you ever wonder why, when you think of David and you, you think about adultery and murder, some of the things that he had, his life was a life of um, um, victories, but it was also a life of defeats. Why would God say that he was a man after his own heart? Well, this chapter we're going to read today is a glimpse into that heart that we see in David. So you could say that David and Saul's relationship was one that was characterized by contention and conflict, and that conflict was brought on by Saul more than David, of course. And then I, I need to tell you before we read this a little bit about the relationship between David and Jonathan. You know this was a friendship like no other, and Jonathan was there when David defeated Goliath and when uh, Saul said, bring that boy, and I want to talk to him. And Saul and Jonathan listened to David, and he was just a young man right out of the pasture uh, tending his flocks. And the scriptures tell us that when Jonathan heard David, that their souls were knit together. They were bound fast together. And I believe this was divine. This was God preparing the way that David would have a friend and an ally in Jonathan when all that was about to shake loose with Saul was going to happen. In fact, Jonathan went so far as to strip himself of his robe and his belt and his bow, which was signifying that, David, one day you will be the king. Now, I just stop and ask you, what on earth was Jonathan thinking? What would, would cause a man that is in line to be king in one meeting to strip himself and say, David, one day you will be king? And with such an unselfish act. So you could say that Jonathan and David's relationship was one that was based on friendship and covenant. And as much as uh, Saul and David's relationship plummeted, Jonathan and David's relationship only increased and grew stronger. And it says over at least twice that Jonathan loved David as himself. Now, the other thing before we read this chapter 
is that when this happens, when we read this chapter, I want to tell you that Saul and Jonathan have gone. They have both lost their lives in a battle with the Philistines on Mount Geboa. They are both dead. They've been dead for some time. David uh, ruled as king over Judah and then eventually over all of Israel. So some time has passed uh, since the death of his good friend Jonathan and Saul. So with that, if you would read along with me, I'm going to read all of chapter 9. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and he said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and he said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house, I have given to your master's grandson. That's Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. So this morning we're going to look at a little bit of the story. We're going to look at why Mephibosheth seemed to live in obscurity, why the son or the grandson of a king and really the son of a prince was living uh, in obscurity, why David didn't know about him. We're going to look at why he was crippled, because it does seem to be a theme here. I find it very interesting that in verse um, 3, when David says to him, is there anyone of the house of Saul to whom I show kindness? Ziba doesn't even mention his name. What he mentions is that he's crippled in both feet. And I thought, man, isn't that a picture of how we are? We tend to focus first on what people's disabilities are, what they can't do, and the negatives in their life. And I, I don't think there's, I think there's meaning there that, Ziba does not even tell him what his name is. He eventually does, but he he tells him the first thing, he's crippled in both feet. 
We're going to look at Mephibosheth, and then we're going to turn our eyes to David, and we're going to see why uh, he has that heart uh, that is so much like our father's heart. Um, And then we're going to just see and wrap it up all together, this beautiful picture of what God has done. So let's take a look, first of all, at Mephibosheth and some of the characteristics of him. First of all, we see, if you will just turn back, you're already in 2 Samuel chapter 9, turn back to 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. We're going to get one of our questions answered real quick. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So he, we know that when he became crippled, he was five. And so I mentioned a little bit about Jonathan and Saul falling on the same day. That was a bad day on Mount Gilboa for Israel. The battle was closing in, and the Philistines had killed Jonathan and some of his brothers, and Saul had been badly injured. It said that he had been hit by the archers of the Philistines, and he was dying. And the last thing he wanted to do was fall into the hands of the enemy because they did all kinds of horrible things to you. And he asked his armor-bearer to take his sword and run him through and end his life. And his armor-bearer, much like David, would not touch the anointed of God. And so Saul took out his saw and he, or his sword and he fell on it himself, committing suicide. And so Saul and Jonathan and his brothers, most of his brothers, fell that day. And as the word slowly trickled back, the word came to the lady who was caring. She was the nurse of this five-year-old boy whose dad was Jonathan. You might say he was a prince because you had the king and Jonathan was a prince. And this boy, Mephibosheth, was in line to the throne politically and culturally speaking. So the word gets back to this nurse, and in that day, it was very, very common for one king, when he deposed the other king, what would he do? He would kill all male descendants. He would, t- And it didn't matter if they were little kids or not. As we come into Advent, we're going to be, I'm sure we will read the story of Herod, right? What does Herod do when Herod finds out he has been tricked by the, the Magi? He has all two-year-old boys and below murdered to remove any threat to his kingdom. Well, knowing that that was the culture, this nurse, who is unnamed, and I have to think she loved Mephibosheth, probably very, I would think she would be maternal, and kids kind of have that way of growing on you, don't they? From the minute you see him, And she had taken care of this boy, and she hears that Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, and she's wondering, are the Philistines going to come to power? Or even if they don't, who will be the new king? But whoever it is, Mephibosheth is a dead boy. And she picks him up, and five-year-olds aren't that little, but she starts to run. I do not know the circumstance. Did she trip and fall, and he was crippled? Or was he running with her at some point and, and, and suffered a horrible fall? But the point is, is that Mephibosheth, who as a little boy to the age of four and five, knew what it was like to probably run and play. But now from five years old into adulthood, he would never be the same again. So we see our first point, Mephibosheth was crippled by the fall. And if we are seeing this story as an illustration of what Christ has done for the sinner, I want to just make that analogy that we too, all of us, every person ever born, 
has been crippled by a fall. And I do realize that we're talking a physical fall versus a spiritual fall. But you know, Mephibosheth, there was nothing available to remedy his situation. You know, I, I was wondering if today um, that could be treated. I, I remember, um, again, as a young boy, there was a family a couple uh, doors down from us, and a lady was holding her toddler, and she had one of those uh, gates up between her door. And as she was walking through the house, she had forgot about that, and she tripped over that, and her son hit the ground, and both of his legs were broken. And I remember seeing this little boy with this contraption on. He had a cast up to his waist, down to his ankles on both legs with a metal bar between his knees and an access for his diaper. And it was the strangest looking thing, but you know what? He healed up fine because of our modern medicine. There was no such thing for Mephibosheth. He was, he was going to be crippled for the rest of his life. And I think, you know, there's no remedy for our falls on our own. That, that mark that has been left is there. When Adam and Eve made that choice to rebel against the Lord, and we call that the fall, things changed, didn't they? All of a sudden, the physical ailments that we all are familiar with, disease and problems, decay. As I get older, every, you know, I just see decay in my own body, right? You're, you're to the point where you, used to, you, have, you had to play a sport to get injured, and now I can get injured just simply getting out of bed. And, and many of you can relate to that. It doesn't take much. Uh, sometimes I ache and somebody says, what did you do? I, I have no idea. I have no idea what I did. But we see that this decay and all these problems were brought about by the fall. It's all part and parcel of life. It's all part of this collective rebellion against God. So we have been damaged um, by the fall. And there is no remedy except for Christ. And, of course, what's the severest consequence of our fall? The, the most severe is death. Romans, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And what could be worse than death? Well, there's things worse than death. Really? Yes, separation from the Lord. Separation from the Lord. So you might say that Mephibosheth in this story, crippled from the fall, represents physically what you and I have experienced spiritually. Second of all, Mephibosheth was separated from the king. Although he was a grandson of a royal lineage, lineage, and he was the son of David's closest friend and ally, he was separated from David. I, I don't even know that David, I don't believe David knew about this. He was five years old when this battle happened. Now he was a grown man. He had a son named Micah. And uh, David asked the question, is there anybody left? But I believe that his life, Mephibosheth's life, was one of fear and isolation. I cannot help but wonder if this nurse, as this boy grew up, and I don't know how long she was in his life until he moved into the house of Machir, which, by the way, tells us the, the standing socially of his life, that he didn't have his own home. He lived with somebody who took him in, Machir. I can't help but wonder if he was told over and over again, listen, your grandfather was Saul, okay? He treated David very horrible. It would be in your best interest to lay low. 
what if David wants to return evil for evil? And we definitely know that Saul treated him. Do you think he ever heard that? Maybe he did, but I, I think his life was one always looking over your shoulder, one of fear and isolation. And you have to remember that he wasn't very mobile. So he had kicked into self-preservation, and he had this, this whole fear and isolation. You know, we have experienced a little bit of that uh, lately with COVID, right? You know, when we think about life before Christ, we too are separated from the king. Everyone you meet, as Keith was talking about, people that are unchurched, people who don't have a mom or a dad or parents telling them about the truth of the scripture, bringing them to church to worship, uh, pouring into them the truths of our Heavenly Father. What else could that life be but one separated from the king and fear and isolation? And I want to read to you uh, this, just a short article on COVID and what it meant, especially to people who were dying uh, who did not know the Lord. This is from a, a, a Chinese pastor. He, he's in an English-speaking church. But he said, COVID-19 hits at the core of the curse of the fall, and it hits at the core of the human condition. And that's because, unlike any other disease, the sick not only face death, but they immediately are put into quarantine and isolated from others. We all remember that. Most people will admit that there's some fear of dying from COVID-19, but dying in isolation from the virus is even more terrifying as the experience is completely different from having cancer or any other disease. Patients are not in the hospital room surrounded by family members or loved ones. Instead, they may be surrounded by medical professionals who have to be in protective gear, shielding themselves so that they don't contract the disease. This isolation is what a lot of people, especially those who do not have Christ, are fearing. While we see the amplification of the curse through COVID-19, the situation also reveals our greatest hope. We, as Christ followers, have the save, saving message of the gospel. We know that Jesus was completely abandoned on the cross. He was abandoned by his friends, and his father turned away temporarily. Jesus bore that grief and isolation, and in doing so, he defeated disease and death completely. The only way to remove the fear of death and isolation is to remember that we will never be abandoned in the same way Jesus was. Colossians 3.3 talks about how we have that hidden life with Christ, where you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Even though we might not feel that physical physical security and safety, we can be confident knowing that we are created for eternal fellowship with the triune God. So, much like Mephibosheth, people without Christ are separated from the king, and that was our condition, um, separated from the king. Well, Mephibosheth wasn't only living in isolation. He had gone out of his way. If you could pick a perfect place to live that nobody would come and look for you, it's this place called Loadable. And when I hear it, I, I couldn't help but think of the name Lower the Bar. It is a place that means no pastors. And I, did a, I, I did some looking around in our own country to see if there's any cities that just would keep you away from, from wanting to go there, and I found three of them. How would you like to move your family to Toad Suck, Arkansas? It's a real place. It's a real place. Or Boring, Oregon. Boring, Oregon. 
And here's, here's another one, Roachtown, Illinois. And these are just a few. In effect, this is where Mephibosheth was hanging out, Lodabar. Some people say that the Debar is a, a twist on the Debir, D-E-B-I-R, which means word or thing, and the lo is in the gator. So it might also mean no thing or no word, but most people say it means no passer, but all people agree that it was not complimentary. So he was living in podunk country. He was living in a, in a land of no pasture. And let me tell you, once again, we see the connection. This is exactly where we are without Christ. Not physically. We're not living in Podsuck, Arkansas, or Lodabar, but we are living in a very barren land without Christ. Um, I always think that we make analogies and we say things based on our experiences and what we're familiar with. And it's no, it's no different uh, for David, right? David, even though he had become this king and this warrior, David knew what it was like to be a shepherd. And he knew what it was like to lead his flocks to places where they could have pasture, where they could have water, and he could protect them. When he came against Goliath, before he killed Goliath, and they looked at him like, who is this like, little guy? He's just like this high school kid, right? What's he going to do? And he tells him, man, I, I've, been, I've seen the bear and I've seen the lion, and the Lord's protecting me from him, and he's going to protect me from this giant. And so when I look at what he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Why do you think all that is is in the forefront of his mind? Because he realizes that God has moved him, that the Lord has been working. The chapters leading up to chapter 9, over and over again, let me me find this for you. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. He had felt the loving kindness of the Lord. He had felt that removal from a barren land to a life with his Lord, the Father. Isn't that what Colossians tell you, tells us, that he's transferred us? If you're a believer, he's transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, geographically, nothing's happened for you here, right? You're still living, hey, a lot of people view Greencastle as Lodabar, right? You know, but he has transferred us from the domain of darkness out of a barren land spiritually into a green pasture. All of this, crippled from a fall, separated from the king, living in a barren land, looking over your shoulder, always on the run, makes me believe very much that Mephibosheth was helpless and hopeless. Even he describes his own life as a dead dog. You know, ironically, this is a, the same phrase David used. When I told you, I was reminding you that he had the chance to kill Saul in that cave. He cut off a corner of his garment. He even felt guilty about that. I love that the scripture tells us about that. He felt guilty when he did that. He said, kept his anointed. He warned his men, do not harm Saul. He is the, I know he's seeking my life, but he's the anointed. And David had the chance, 
to take his life. But when David confronted Saul from a distance, that's what he said. He basically said, why are you you owning me so much? What am I, a dead dog or a flea? And I just, I found it interesting that Mephibosheth said the same to David. I'm a dead dog. He might have viewed himself as crippled, couldn't sustain any livelihood. He was dependent on somebody for where he lived. He was dependent on food. And he viewed himself as a dead dog. He was helpless and hopeless. We can all relate to this. I see it as we age. You know, my mom passed away in April, and God blessed her with such good health until she was in her 90s. But she started to really deteriorate in her 90s. And I I almost feel selfish for wanting her around because when she finally passed, I just realized how hard life was for her in the end. She needed a knee replacement at 94, and she was in agony, and she had bone on bone. She finally got the knee replacement, and it did help. Then she started having heart problems with her valve, and she was winded, and all the things that my mom loved to do, she could not do anymore. If you would have come to visit my mom when she was in her 70s or maybe even early 80s, she would not let you get up. She loved to prepare meals for anybody. She loved to make her house like a bed and breakfast. Anybody was welcome. Her rooms were always filled, all ages of people, and she loved to, all that stuff evaporated. She couldn't do. She couldn't even walk to the table when somebody else prepared a meal without being winded. And we see this that when we become helpless and hopeless and dependent, and I, I really believe that Mephibosheth had experienced some dark and bitter days. First Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Greek term here for hope in this passage, it means an eager, confident expectation. This hope of the believer is not only living, but it's lively. Our hope isn't only living, it's lively. One translation says the phrase is, it's a hope that lives on, unlike the empty, dead hope of this world. This hope is living, and it's energizing, it's alive, and it's active in our souls. And sometimes we don't feel that way, right? That's when I think that that's the Lord calling us back, to get back in His Word, get back in prayer, get back in fellowship. If you're not feeling that hope, uh, that energizing, alive hope, um, you know, maybe we need to do business with the Lord. We live in great expectation. Well, those are some of the characteristics of Mephibosheth. And let's take a look at David real quickly here. Let me ask you a question, a rhetoric question, but one to just ponder. What was Mephibosheth's role in this act of loving kindness? What did he do? He did nothing. Kind of like the word Lodabar, he did no thing. What role did he play? Nothing. He was hiding. He was on the down low. And who came looking for him? This David initiated this. This is what caught my eye in this story. The first time I read this story long ago, it wasn't this parallel of what God did for us. I just found it so awesome that David woke up one morning, and instead of thinking about himself like I'm so prone to do, He thought about who he could bless. How many people wake up in the morning and say, you know, who can I bless today in the name of the Lord? The Lord has been so good to me. Who can I bless? Who can I show this chesed? 
this loving kindness of the Lord. Who can I show? Is it a neighbor? Is it, and, and it's Mephibosheth. It's somebody he doesn't even know. It's somebody that brings nothing to the table. He doesn't even know if Mephibosheth supports his policies as a king. He doesn't even know if Mephibosheth is more like Saul or if Mephibosheth is more like Jonathan. He doesn't care. He's going to pour out the loving kindness of the Lord. He doesn't even know his name. And I just find that so awesome that he sought him out. Well, I don't have to make, this isn't a far stretch to realize where I'm going with this. This is what God did. He demonstrated his love for you and me and every sinner while we were still sinners. We had flatlined. To use a medical term, all of us were code blue on the table when God did this work for us. He did it. So, you know, if I think sometimes we can go way off the deep end and we can think, man, God would never save me. I don't bring anything to the table. And you would be right. And then you can say, you know, God really got a good deal when he saved me. I bring a lot to the table. No, you don't. No, you don't. God set, sought you out because of who he is, not because of who you are. Because what he did and his work through Christ and not what you ever did. Again, God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, he made the move like David did. I think of that story, going back to talking about kids in Sunday school. Remember the song and the story about Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little, that's all singing. No, I'm not. A wee little man was he who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. True, it's a true story. You know, we think of the song, but Zacchaeus was not a tax collector. He was a cheap tax collector. He was a cheap crook. And he was smaller in stature, and it was a mob and a throng around the Lord, and he wanted to see him. And he climbed up in the tree, and, and he, he saw him, and the Lord, the Lord sought him out. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. We're going to eat. And people started grumbling. What did Zacchaeus say? You know, I mean, the, the Lord, Zacchaeus said, you know, I'm going to give half of what I own owe to, or own to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody... Um, I'm going to pay him back four, four times that. And what did Jesus say? And we know Jesus knows the heart of people, so he knows these salvation stories. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he is the son of Abraham. You see, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He's the one he seeks out, just like David sought out Mephibosheth. So if you know the Lord, if you've repented and you've agreed with him about sin and you've put your trust in him and you are a child of the Lord, he sought you out. He sought you out. Also, did, not only did David uh, seek out Mephibosheth, but his kindness was based on covenant. What is a covenant? It's an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And, you know, there's, uh, the, the Bible is just filled with stories of covenant. Even our word testament, right, is the old English word meaning covenant. Old Covenant, New Covenant. We see lots of covenants. God made a covenant uh, with Noah. He made them with Abraham. He made one with David, Moses. Then the New Covenant that Christ mediates in, in, in the New Testament. But we see one thing throughout Scripture, that God is doing his redemptive work through covenant. And he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, covenant-fulfilling God. And I'm so thankful for that because the other thing we learn from the scriptures is mankind isn't so great at keeping covenants, are they? Marriages are covenants. 
How are we doing in that covenant? I'm so thankful God keeps his covenant. I'll read these. I don't think we have time to turn to them, but I want to read at least two covenants Jonathan and David made while Jonathan was still alive. Jonathan said, if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of earth, the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And then again, he says, go in safety, talking to David, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you. And check this out. He will be between me and you and our descendants forever. I think this is why David woke up one morning and he said, you know what, I made a covenant. And I don't care who it is. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the worst, filthiest person that hates me as a king. I made a covenant with Jonathan, Jonathan and I'm going to keep that covenant. And so we see that David, like our Father, our Heavenly Father, was a covenant keeper. He kept his covenant. Then also as we read uh, in 2 Samuel 9, it starts off like this. Then David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David extended kindness for the sake of another. David has already asked, you know, if you go back, you don't have to go back, but in chapter 7, David, I I always say woke up, but I'm just saying that on this day, right, David woke up in chapter 7 and he said, you know what, something's wrong. Why is it that I live in a house made of cedar and the ark of God dwells in curtains? And he woke up and he said, you know what, that, that's not right. I, I want to build I want to build something magnificent for the Lord. And God told him through the prophet Nathan, you're not the man to do that. I'm gonna one of your sons will do that. So a couple chapters later he wakes up, well, what can I do for somebody else? I love the heart of this man. But he extended kindness, again, not for what Mephibosheth had done. He extended kindness for the sake of another, and that was for Jonathan. And we see this, too, in the saving work of God that, you know, um, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So we see again and again and again that what God has done in saving us is not based on you and me. It's based on Christ. It's for the sake and because of another. If you feel like you're not good enough and you don't know why God would ever save you, you're right. None of us are. But it's for who he is and what Christ has done. It would have been enough if David had just had him in his palace and told him, you know what, Mephibosheth, you're probably afraid that I'm going to kill you because you're a descendant of Saul. It would have been enough that he said, go in peace. 
but he didn't. He restored what was lost. He restored all Saul's land and possessions to Mephibosheth. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table regularly. In one swoop, one fell swoop, Mephibosheth went from a dead dog, his, his, his description of himself, to everything that his grandfather had owned. He went to land, to servants, to sustenance, to future, to a hope. Nothing had changed about his being crippled. But everything changed because God, uh, David restored what was lost. And I think this is exactly what happened to me. This is what happened to you if you have put your trust in Christ. And the king came knocking. He restores what was lost. He restores to us a hope. He restores to us a future. He restores, uh, the, to use the phrase from Genesis, he restores the ability and the option to walk with him in the pool of the Gehenna. And he restores life abundantly and eternally. Not abundant with stuff and junk, but abundant with relationships of hope. Hope that the world doesn't have. Jesus said, I came that they might have life. Have it abundantly. Not just eking it out. Have life abundantly. He restores what was lost. Last point. David offers adoption and fellowship at his table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he ate at the king's table regularly. So even though David had reinstated Ziba and his sons back into the service of Mephibosheth to care and cultivate and reap the rewards of all the stuff that David had restored to Mephibosheth, he still had him at his table. This lame, dead dog, this fugitive, this enemy of the king, uh, the man who probably thought the king just wanted him dead, is now sitting with his crippled legs under the table, sitting with the king. You remember that song, um, he brought me, to, I don't know the, the title, but he brought me to his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. This is exactly what the Father has done for us. Um, again, David didn't have to, David could have just restored his land and done everything, but you see where he went the extra step. Not only did he restore what was lost, but he invited him to his table because there's another dimension there. It's not just stuff, it's fellowship. I, I would have loved to have heard the stories. Do you think uh, David told him, you know, your grandfather was really mean to me. <laughs> but the conversations that they had at the table, I wonder if, if David told Mephibosheth what a man Jonathan was. Because he didn't know his dad. He died, his dad died when he was five. I wonder if he told him, man, you, me and your dad are buddies. He risked his life for me. And, I, and you probably never knew that. I just wonder what the, the conversations looked like. This is what the father does for all who come to him in repentance. I think about the prodigal son, right? We finally have that prodigal son moment. I love the way the scriptures put it. 
Uh, one translation says, you know, he's a, when the prodigal son is feeding the pigs, he, it says he came to his senses. He realized what he had with his father. He went back humbly. He came before his father humbly. But how did his father come to him? In an all-out stare. When he saw his son return, he said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. So our Father has offered adoption. We become sons and daughters and we're invited to his table for fellowship. So let me wrap this up. I started this, this time together with a story about Indiana Jones. And I said, no story captures the essence of who I am like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's not true. Because you see, there, if any story ever captured the essence of who I am, it's the story of Mephibosheth. I don't like to admit that because I really would like to be the hero in the story. But in the story of life, I really am the lame, dead dog of Mephibosheth. I am crippled from the fall. I am guilty of sin. I was separated from the king. I was living in a barren land, and I was helpless and hopeless until the king came knocking. And I'm so glad he did. And I'm I'm hoping you are too. Um, If you don't know, this king, this Jesus, uh, I would encourage you to talk with me. I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, But it it is a fellowship that you don't want to miss out on. And so I would invite you uh, to his banqueting table. His banner over us is love. He is a just God. He is a merciful God. He he does hate sin. Um, He can't be in the presence of sin, so I don't want to uh, act like he is is, is not a just God because he's just. But he's merciful and loving, and he desires fellowship with each and every one of us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this story, the true story of how David realized that he had made a covenant, and he realized the loving kindness he had experienced from you. Thank you for the parallels there, Lord. Thank you for all that you have done for us, inviting us to your table. In Jesus' name.